Welcome to a new episode of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week we're featuring a talk from cameraman Dana Stevens on Buster Keaton, a recent FLC event celebrating a new book from author and Slate film critic Dana Stevens. Moderated by writer Imogene Sarah Smith and FLC programming assistant Maddie Whittle. The conversation ranged from the two authors' love of Buster Keaton, the evolution of the filmmaker's filmography, the perception of masculinity in Charles Rosner's Steamboat Bill Jr., and the legacy of Keaton in Hollywood and beyond. Dana Stevens's new book, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century, and Imogene Sarah Smith's book, Buster Keaton, The Persistence of Comedy, are both available for purchase. Now, let's go to the talk. Thank you both so much for being with us this evening. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That was just pure joy. It was really incredible to see those films big. Um, mm-hmm. I've never seen them in the theater before, so it was uh, really stunning restorations and lovely score. I wonder if we could just start because we. Uh, I want to make sure to leave time for audience questions. I'll I'll kick things off um, and then we'll open it up. But just to start out, I wonder if you could each talk a little bit about your relationship to Buster Keaton, how it started, how mm-hmm. how uh, you each came to write books about this sort of singular auteur figure. Mm-hmm. Do you want to start? Okay, I can start since my book is, is older than <laughs> yours. Chronological. And we can do, do chronological. Um, I, I discovered Buster Keaton, I was in college, um, but I was home on a visit I was not yet a silent film fan or anything. My parents were watching some films, and I was not. I was in my room doing something else, and I came down to the kitchen to get a snack. And, you know, I sort of was, it was on in the living room, and I, I was caught my eye. They were watching a short called The Goat, which is one of his most delightful short comedies from, what, 1921, maybe. And, you know, of course, it, it was, it's one of his funniest films, but it was really, I have to say, kind of a coup de foudre for me. Um, and the thing that immediately arrested me and that I just was stunned by was this paradox between his face and his body you know, that this this beautiful, solemn, otherworldly face and this clown's body that is continually in motion and continually in this kind of chaotic slapstick movement and the way that these two things that seem so contradictory somehow go together perfectly. And it's this kind of hot and cold and I don't know, it's just like, who is this man? I mean, he's like from another planet. And, you know, from that day, I just was like, I, I have to, I have to see his films. I have to know about him. And I embarked on a kind of obsessive, you know, obsessive watching of all of his movies and reading of all of the books. Um, my book, uh, The Persistence of Comedy, is really, I would say, a kind of portrait of the artist. It was my attempt to really... Um, look at look at his films, look at his particular style of comedy and what that sort of, you know, how his, how his unique style of this kind of serious comedy played out. 
Um, so it's not really a biography. And unlike, you know, your, your book is a wonderful, uh, wonderfully sets him against his times. I feel like I was kind of looking at him as a very singular figure. And you do a wonderful job of showing how he really was interacting with his times. But so that's, that's my Buster Keaton story. And Steamboat Bill was actually the first of his films that I ever saw in a theater with an audience at Film Forum. And it was this wonderful experience of realizing that there actually were all of these other people mm-hmm. who loved him as I did and who had this, this incredible reaction to him and you could feel it coming from the audience. And so it's wonderful to be back with an audience seeing his films again. Oh, that yeah, that coup de foudre feeling. I bet some people in this audience have had an experience where they could recount something similar in a way. Um, mine was, and I talk about it in the first three pages of the book, so if you have the book, I'll make it a thumbnail version so you don't have to hear it twice. But um, but my coup de foudre moment was uh, when I was a little bit older than that. I'd been a cinephile for a long time and a big film lover, but I just hadn't had a lot of chances to see silent film projected in that way. And I was studying in Strasbourg in Alsace in the north of France in grad school when I was about 28, 29. And it was the centenary of his birth. He was born in 1895, and I was there in the 1995-1996 school year. And this little cinematheque in the town of Strasbourg had programmed a really, really excellent Keaton festival in the way that only the French can do. And it was all of his silent films. It was all of his shorts and all of his features and some of them played several times and it went on for three weeks or something like that. It was this luxurious kind of festival. And uh, and I had a very cheap entry because of my student card and I was living nearby and there was no reason not to go to these movies. So I kept going back again and again. I watched a few of them several times and it was a similar sense of who was this person? How could he possibly have existed this whole time that I've been alive? You know, in fact, he died the year that I was born, 1966. And I it's not that I never knew about him. I'm sure I knew his name, but, you know, I had no clear sense of who he was or what he did. And uh, and so that festival was really transformative. That little Cinematheque, because it was a little state-subsidized, beautiful thing that only exists in European countries, also had a great library. And so I started going to their library and reading everything I could about Keaton. Much of it was American biographies in French translation. So that was the first time I read about him, you know, and and just started to realize that his life, which, you know, we both get into in our books, goes so far beyond what you see on the screen. And for example, you know, that by the time he made One Week, his first independent film, when he was only 24, 25 years old, he had already been a professional performer, a very well-known and successful one for 17 years or something like that, because he became famous when he was five, right? So there's that whole part of his life to learn about the vaudeville childhood performance. There's this incredible span of silent films that he made that's kind of bookended by the two we saw tonight. And then there's all the rest of his life that has so many other stories that intersect with, with other people's stories. So, um, yeah, I would guess that that would now be what 1996 is 25 years ago or a little bit more that I've loved Keaton. And, you know, for the last five of those or so, I've been trying to turn it into a book about him. So something else I wanted to say, cause I didn't say it when I first sat down, um, I thanked you all for being here, the audience, but I didn't thank Lincoln Center for having us, film at Lincoln Center, Maddie, Imogen, like this is a dream come true for me to be here. So thank you to everyone. Thank you both. Uh, I uh, have so many questions that your books uh, raised for me, but I want to start with these two films. Uh, If you could just, you explained how they bookended the story of Buster Keaton Studios and his sort of independence. Could you just talk a little bit more about, uh, 
what about these two films in particular is sort of emblematic of the work that he did during that period and his sort of creative flourishing? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about them as bookends. I'll start with One Week and say a few things, and then maybe you can too on One Week. Um, so so One Week is is the first movie that he makes solo, uh, that he releases. It's not actually his first, the first film he made as a solo filmmaker, but he chose to hold the, the other one, the first one that he made, The High Sign, also a very funny movie that was released a couple of years later and that you can see everywhere now, because he wanted to make something special for his first film, something that felt like only I could make it. You know, it's nothing like something that's been done before. And I think One Week really achieves that. You know, I feel like it's almost the the germinating seed for romantic comedy you know and you see so much of the future in romantic co- of romantic comedy including um what's the movie with tom hanks where the house falls apart the money pit you know i mean you see comedy that happened decades and decades later kind of in in, in that moment uh in one week um and what else did i want to say about it um well you have a wonderful chapter about this and how it was inspired by this actual prefab house movement. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me. Yes. um, This is something that I wanted to talk about with one week and again, get way more into it in the book, but it's also a topical comedy in this way that might not seem clear to us now, you know, in the world that we live in, the idea of building this house kit is kind of absurd, but in fact, he was kind of spoofing a a very big trend of the time, which were these from Sears Roebuck company and and many other companies, these do-it-yourself house kits that were at their peak of popularity right then in 1920, when the movie was made and around the turn of the century, because of all kinds of demographic shifts in American culture, including the expansion of the railroad and the moving of people from the country to the city. You know, in fact, I don't think this made it into the book, this fact, but it's, it's a foundational fact for it, is that in 1920, the year one week was made, was the first year of the census, the U.S. census, which happens every 10 years, right? It happened in 1920. And in that census was the first time that there were more Americans living in cities than living in rural locations, you know, and it was really a moment of kind of crossover that America started to become an urban city. And you often see that when you're reading about kind of urban histories of the U.S. 1920 is this turning point. And obviously Keaton was not trying to comment on that fact, you know, and certainly didn't know about that census fact. But he's channeling that energy in the culture of, you know, housing starts suddenly growing and real estate being a new place to invest. And, you know, the idea that young couples don't have to just inherit the farm from their parents. They could build their own house and maybe they could even order it from Sears or from the portable home company or whatever it's called in one week. And so one week is this kind of delirious parody of that. And also very specifically, as I also write about in the book, although it's not my discovery, is um, is is it's not spoofing, but sort of playing on this um, this industrial short that had been made the year before in 1919 called, um, what was that one called? Homemade. Homemade, yes, homemade, of course, um, which shows a couple building a house kit. It's kind of a drama, dramatization of what it would be like if you went to a home company and built a house kit. And it was something that would have been made by the Ford Motor Company, shown for free before various movies that you went to see. You know, it was almost like an advertorial that you saw before a movie and was something that Keaton certainly must have seen in 1919 because he cites it in some very specific moments in this movie. But he's not really, I don't think, trying to make a commentary about, you know, the new housing economy or, you know, the new kind of urbanized way of living in the U.S. He's just grabbing something as he did, magpie style, from the culture of his time and getting as many laughs as he can out of it. And what clearly would have appealed to him about that is just, I mean, he loved anything mechanical and he loved, you know, he had this kind of mind for physics and for the mechanics of things. And he was the kind of person 
without any kind of formal education who could, you know, sort of take a engine apart and put it back together again and could build these sort of Rube Goldberg machines, the kind of thing he also does in Steamboat Bill when he rigs up the the ropes to run the steamboat. I mean, that's the kind of thing he actually could do. He just had that kind of mind. And so seeing this, but then he takes this commercial, which is about, look how smooth and easy it's going to be to do this. And then, of course, he thinks about all of the ways that it could go wrong. Where I see also one week as so seminal is that it's it really looks forward to this particular style of film that he made, which is also The Boat, which is another short comedy, which is actually made as a kind of sequel to this film. He brought back this actress, Sybil Seeley, who I know is yours and my favorite of his leading ladies, to play his wife again. Now they have two little kids. They embark on this boat. Um, you know, a few years later, he makes The Navigator, which is Buster and, you know, the girl on this ocean liner. Then he makes The General, where it's a train. But these films, which are entirely based around a single prop mm-hmm. and which have this really kind of streamlined, stripped down quality, which is the thing that was so unique about that, that nobody else was making that kind of film. And, and it really channeled his particular vision, you know, and I think... Steamboat Bill is kind of this other, more character-based comedy that he did. But One Week is really somewhere you can see him out of the gate, you know, having this particular vision, which he then returned to mm. throughout his his career. Yeah. I mean, I even saw that. I hadn't thought of it when we programmed these two together, but it makes complete sense that that gag of the falling house, right? The great climax of, of Steamboat Bill Jr., I mean, it develops throughout his career, right? It's, he, it's first in a short he made with Roscoe Arbuckle where they're it, backstage and it's a stage flat that falls and he's in the window. And then he does it again in a little bigger scale in one week and then in the biggest scale of all in Steamboat Bill. Yeah, so and you can see it developing between those two, right? That scene with the hinged wall that turns up mm-hmm. upside down in, in one week and Sybil Seeley's at the top and he's at the bottom, but he keeps on growing it. And, and it's a full, what, eight, nine years later that he builds this two-ton house front that you know nearly crushes him in, in Steamboat Bill Jr. And even within Steamboat Bill Jr., you see more iterations of that gag, like when and the, the col- sort of collapsing the, the stage door, and... right? Everything is kind of collapsing around him. And that gets into a whole other question, which is, you know, just the instability of the built world at the end of Steamboat Bill. Just It was really staggering to see on the big screen just now how just surreal and alienist that is and how much it seems to be saying about the instability of the world around us, even though all I think he was really trying to do is build crazy sets and get good laughs and, you know, make an exciting climax. But that moment, there's a moment near the end of Steamboat Bill where everything's almost blown away. The hospital's blown away, everything. And there's just this and kind he's of in field, this field and he's kind of running around. I mean, it's just, and I was thinking, I mean, it's him at his, his like most elemental and existential and just sort of alone. And suddenly yeah. he's alone in the world and everything is collapsing. And then it's like his life is passing before his eyes because there's this beautiful scene where he goes into the ruins of this theater and it's like he's going into his his past in vaudeville and he actually has specific moments as you know many people have written about the moment where he dives into the into the paint painted backdrop mm-hmm. of the lake the moment with the the dummy that scares him these were actually specific memories from his childhood and so it's this dreamlike way that he kind of stumbles into these memories of his childhood. And then when he walks out the door and it kind of collapses behind him, it, it really is, it's just, it, it's not even exactly funny, but it's just, it's, it's beautiful and dreamlike. And it really is like he's just 
living through all of these images that are in his mind as the kind of world is collapsing. And as we know, that was also the moment when he already knew that he was losing his studio and that his, his, this part of his career was ending. So there's something very poignant about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, just not to get too into the biography part of it, but a little bit of the background about what makes that climax of Steamboat Bill so moving is what was happening backstage at that moment in his life, which, you know, to give a very thumbnail sketch of it, it's his last independently produced film, but he didn't know that when he set out to make Steamboat Bill and when he built the house set that was going to collapse on him and when all of those gags and stunts were planned. Um, he he heard about that the same weekend that, that the house stunt had been, you know, meticulously planned with his production designer because it's obviously a very dangerous stunt. You can only build that house once. You can only create that person's body that might be destroyed once. And so a lot was riding on that stunt. And the same weekend that he was going to tape it, which was Labor Day of 1927, he um, he learned from his producer, longtime producer and patron, the person who had been you know keeping his company afloat, and his brother-in-law, Joe Skank, that because of changes in the film industry, because of, you know, the fact that his films were no longer making enough profit to, to motivate the investment in them, he was being handed off to MGM and he was losing his independent career. And he learned that in the middle of the shoot. And so when you know that and you see that famous, famous shot of the house collapsing around him, and you know that he was kind of at that moment, as his widow would say much later, really indifferent to whether he lived or died, you know, it, it brings it that much more beauty and tragedy, I think, the, the end of that movie, because that movie always feels to me, Steamboat Bill, like he had reached a certain turning point in his career. You know, he was starting to resolve all of these things that had been obsessing him for so long, his relationship with his father, just played out in the movie. And, you know, these certain images that he had repeated and repeated over and over of houses falling apart and flying away and trying to find a stable home. And that movie feels to me like a moment those things are starting to be resolved. And he might have moved on to, you know, a different phase in his career. And because of technology and because of the coming of sound and a studio system and film history and just history itself, that was never to be. Hi, I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. The Film Comment Letter is a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com to get the letter every week. Support independent film journalism. Support Film Comment. I'm wondering if you could get in a little bit, each of you, to, to talking about his performance style, which I think is really central to his sort of authorial signature. I mean, he didn't direct all of his films, but he was he so much of his comedy and the sort of intervention that his comedy made, I think had to do with his affect and how that affect played against the scenarios that he created. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, he really did direct, he really did direct all of his movies. Um he in in this period when he had his independent studio, sometimes he's credited as a as a co-director Sometimes he's not credited as all at all, but from everything that everyone said, he really was basically the director. And that's the it was kind of the tragedy when he went to MGM that they didn't recognize him as a director. But we can maybe get into that more later. But I do want to talk about the performance because to me, Steamboat Bill is also perhaps his greatest kind of dramatic comic performance. Um 
you know, it just has these wonderful, I mean, the, the, the hat, the scene where he's trying on the hats and these things that are all based on his performance and the way that, that the film goes from those very, very subtle, small scale things that, you know, are, are based around these little subtleties of performance to this, this massive kind of majestic, the whole world is collapsing is extraordinary about this film. But I mean, to me, the thing about his performance is, of course, in his time in the 20s, you know, he's always written about as the great stone face. You know, he has no expression. He's, you know, a blank. It's, you know, people talk about him being, being, you know, cold or he doesn't, you know, connect with, he doesn't ask for an emotional response from the audience the way Chaplin does, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know what movie these, these people were watching, but to me, he is so incredibly expressive in every single thing he does and the kind of lucidity that he, the clarity of his movements and the clarity of his expressiveness is such that every tiny little movement and gesture, you know, is just, you know, it like lightning, you know, I mean, you just see it so clearly. I mean, the other scene I love so much in this is the scene where he goes to the prison with the bread, you know, and he does the little pantomime and everything, you know, and there's just nobody else who's at all like him. And that's kind of going back to what I said about when I initially saw him. And it was just like, he's from another planet, you know, because he just, and it was, I think, because he had started performing as, as an almost, you know, an infant practically. I mean, he was on stage from such an early age. He had such control over his body and his face and every muscle, you know, that he just was, it's, it's like everybody else is in this, it's, he's in like a finer grain than everybody else. It's like mm -hmm. he's at a higher resolution than everybody else because he had this control over his body and over his face and he's, everything he's doing is so precise and it's so delicate and it's, but it's so clear. Um, and, you know, it's not really true that sound destroyed him, but it's also true that he really, nobody ever needed sound less mm -hmm. because he could do everything just, you know, with his, with his face and with his body. Um, I guess before I, the last thing I would say before I hand it off to you is, I mean, the other thing about this is just how amusing it is that he loved to play these kind of iffy, wimpy characters. You know, a lot of his films start out with him playing these kind of incredibly sort of, you know, incompetent and sort of do docile and passive characters. And it's sort of so that he could then have this character arc where he develops into becoming the sort of heroic action figure that he is at the end. But it also somehow, it somehow speaks to something in his character, this, this, a kind of sweetness and, and a passivity. Um, but you also, I also kind of feel like, I don't know, only a man who was really secure in his own masculinity would have been comfortable making sort mm -hmm. of sport of himself in the way that he does in this film, playing this kind of, um, of, of you know, effete character and all of these jokes. But it's just very funny because nothing could be less than what he, less like the way he actually was. And that also speaks to just what a good actor he was. And you see that he has these whole different styles of movement that he can adopt at different times. And he kind of takes on these different characters, even though he didn't, he didn't do that a lot, but he could. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, what you were just saying made me think of something I hadn't quite thought of before, which is that he's always, in his silent films, creating these structures that question masculinity. At the beginning of this movie, it's him versus his father in a way that was very similar to him versus Joe Keaton, his real-life father, and their vaudeville act, which is the big hulking guy, you know, who's laughing at the effeteness of the little wimpy guy, but who's also getting outsmarted by him all the time, right? But there's many, many other movies where, you know, whether it's because he's this kind of rich dimwit who doesn't know how to do anything, like in The Navigator, there's all these moments where he's not the masculine ideal, you know, and, and, the, and the story of the movie is more or less, in this movie, it honestly is, to a large extent, a questioning of that masculine ideal, right? But it is also, at the end, him coming around to being this hero who physically comes to the rescue of all these people, including his father. Um, but yeah, I think that's another place where I don't think Keaton was consciously trying to push some boundary or say, let's question masculinity. You know, he was a very, you know, manly, traditional guy in his regular life, as you say, and was not setting out to, you know, tear down social structures in that way. But because he was such a precise observer of human psychology and of, you know, social psychology and of the world around him, I feel like all that gets inscribed into those performances. Well, I want to leave time for some audience questions. So I'm going to open it up. Um, I have more questions if, uh, if, if we need more prompting, but go ahead. Uh, the question was just about the, uh, the moment in which he's trying on his iconic pork pie hat during the scene where he's trying on all of the hats. I think you I, do. I, in your book. I think I do. <laughs> I think I do mention that. Yes, um, the persistence of comedy by Imogen Sarah Smith. It is one of the best books on Buster Keaton. And I was going to say this at the beginning. I didn't say it, but when I read your book, which was at the beginning of the research for mine, like I had my contract, I was starting to read more widely about Keaton. I read Imogen's book, and then I just thought, and I remember saying this to a, a friend after I read it. There's no need for my book anymore. Hers is perfect. It's so good. It's a really oh, wonderful well, book on Keaton. So I hope you all. Thank read it. you. I think that it does sort of seem to speak to your sense of this as somehow this moment when he's at some kind of turning point because he's seeing this, his past incarnation kind of reappear. And it's a very cryptic moment, really. Like, what is this reaction he has when he sees it? He whips it off and he's kind of got this embarrassed reaction. But is it, I don't know. Is it a reaction to the past? Is it him not wanting his father to see it? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a joke to the audience. It's a joke for one to thing. the audience, and he does do that. You know, there's a there's a joke in Go West about him not smiling. You know, where you know when you say that smile, and it's a joke about the fact that he had become this really well known figure, and he's now sort of playing different characters. He he last wears the pork pie hat in Go West, and then he never wore it again except for that moment in, in this, until mm -hmm. later in his life when he readopts it. But it, it is um, his, certainly his awareness of, of this, um, this image that he had created. But um, I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to say about that. I just was also struck by your, your talking about um, seeing these films for the first time. And, and I just feel like we need to mention the fact that all of these, a lot of, of Keaton's films were believed to be lost for many years and were really out of circulation. And he, you know, didn't have his own copies. He didn't own the rights to them because they really belonged to his producer. And um, fortunately, you know, someone came along, I mean, mainly Raymond Rohauer came along and, and tracked down all these films and all of his films survive, but it really was this matter of searching all over the world. And some of them were found in Europe and some of them were found in his, the house that he had left, you know, right. um, 
But the fact that we have these films and that they've now been restored and they look so beautiful and they're now easy to see is such a, a triumph because he went through a period of his life of thinking that most of these were gone. Yeah, and I mean, he if, if not for a few years at the very end of his life, he would probably have died thinking, you know, all of that silent work I did is just not valued by anyone and it's all lost. The question is how much of the fastidiousness and precision that he brought to his work was consistent with his personality outside his work? I mean, do you want to start? I have lots to say about that. I mean, I, I see that as being consistent with his personality, yes, but I mean, for much of his youth, his his work was so synonymous with his life that there wouldn't have been many other places for the fastidiousness to express himself. But I'm thinking of other stories about ways that he was a perfectionist in his life. You know, as a host, he was known in sort of his high Hollywood days when he had a big mansion in Beverly Hills and was riding high. He was known as a very meticulous host who would grill, you know, steaks to measure for every one of his guests. I'm trying to think of other stories like that. Late in his life, he got into embroidery. Do you know about that? That he, he would actually, because he sewed growing up, he sewed in the theater because you were always repairing your costumes or re repairing the curtains or something like that. Um, but apparently one of his hobbies, in addition to bridge, which he, he was obsessed with uh, in the latter half of his life, he started embroidering. And uh, his grandma, his granddaughter now, who's still around with us, has a, a necktie that he apparently exquisitely embroidered. I've never seen this necktie. But that sort of goes with that persona. I think he was somebody who wanted to do things right when he did them for sure, and who had high expectations of his crew and his cast when they were in his movies. He was a congenial person to work for. I think his crews loved him, but he was not necessarily easy. You know, he expected a high level of performance. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I don't know if you have anything. Well, my, my first thought was exactly what you just said, that his work was his life. I mean, it was almost like he didn't have, you know, when he was working, when he was had his own studio, he channeled everything into, into the films. And, you know, as he said, you know, we ate, slept, and dreamed these movies. And so there kind of wasn't all that. I mean, he really seems to have been someone who was, like, most alive when he was working, and his work was what he cared about most. But he was a very – he was certainly a very obsessive person. I mean, everything that he cared about, whether it was baseball – or bridge or whatever, he would become really obsessed with it and he would become, you know, really, really good at it. And then there were kind of whole areas of life that he just, you know, religion, politics, like no interest. Business, marriage, Business, whatever. <laughs> Fatherhood. No interest, you know, but the things that he cared about were often, and the things he was drawn to were things that kind of uh, invite this kind of precision and exactitude and, and you know, that he, that he was so gifted at. Yeah, it makes me think too of something he said in an interview once where someone said if you had had an education, because he never did, and his story that he always told was that he went to school for one day in his life, because he was an itinerant child performer. Um, if you had gone to school and gotten an education, what would you have wanted to do? And he said, a civil engineer, which when you think about the imagination at work in those films makes complete sense. You know, that's someone who's building cities, you know, and then tearing them down in a funny way, but, you know, who's interested in the process of creating worlds. I think we have time for one more question. If we, uh, I, this was the first hand I saw. That's a variation on something people have asked me before that I don't have a good answer to either, which is who would play him in a biopic now? You know, which with the young Buster, I I got nothing. You know, like someone who can do those stunts and act in that way. Maybe as an old man or a middle aged man, I could think of a person, but 
we don't, there isn't anybody who has that training in their body. You know, maybe if you went to the circus and found some kid who had grown up in the circus, you might be able to find someone capable of that comedy. 30 years ago, Jackie Chan. Oh, yeah. Well, Jackie Chan clearly is like explicitly quoting him, right? And can do all of that stuff. Yeah, you're right. 30 years ago, it could have been Jackie Chan. But this is a different question. Who would he care about who in the landscape now? About? That's. I would, that was, that was, that was coming to my mind, Wes Anderson, because of that same kind of incredibly meticulous and kind of world building. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the only, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to come up with a name, but I would, I would just say, you know, he was really fascinated by technology and, you know, I don't, I mean, the, the thing about films today is, you know, films today that have a lot of action and stunts, it's like it's all just dig- it's all just done digitally now, you know. And he was such a stickler about doing things authentically. Um, and so I, you know, as much I think he would have been. I'm trying to think of what aspects of technology he would have been really interested in. But I think the idea of just like, well, you have the guy, you know, falling off the skyscraper and whatever, but we're just going to create it all digitally. Like, <laughs> right? I don't think that would have impressed him. <laughs> Maybe some of the um, Tom Cruise stunts in Mission Impossible but, where he's really, supposedly uh, at least, really clinging to the to the airplanes. There was something else I was thinking of, too. There's a, there was a Keaton-esque stunt in something recently. Oh, it'll come to me. But ask me the next question. I had a conversation recently about whether he would uh, have a kinship with the jackass folks, mm-hmm. which I think, I think there's a lot to that. Except that he didn't do dirty jokes at all. So as long as they keep it clean. And he didn't laugh at his own gags, which, right? which the jackass guys do. Uh, well, I think we should, uh, just in order to make sure uh, we have time for the book signing element, which is the final piece of this evening, I think we should leave it there. Uh, but Dana will be at the table that you passed just on your way into the theater. Um, books are available for sale, thanks to Shakespeare and Company. And I think at that, uh, we'll just leave it there. Uh, so thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Have a good night.